All right. Welcome to Cherry Becker's Government and Public Sector Podcast, where we discuss important governmental accounting updates, compliance matters, and best practices to guide state and local governments forward. I'm Danny Martinez with Cherry Becker. I'm a director and the Government and Public Sector Accounting Advisory Lead. And with me today is Scott Anderson, a director in Cherry Becker's Government and Public Sector Group, who recently returned from his fellowship with GASB. Thanks for joining me, Scott. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So we're going to cover a few GASB hot topics on this episode, but I thought I'd start with a GASB presentation that I uh, recently attended at the Association of Governmental Accountants uh, National Conference in Anaheim. So Joel Black and Lisa Parker from GASB were there, and, and the topic was how GASB 87 leases, GASB 94 subscription-based uh, sorry, GASB 94P3s and GASB 96 subscription-based IT arrangements are all uh, interconnected. And I thought they did a really good job kind of demystifying the three standards and making the implementation feel uh, more manageable. So I was wondering if you could share with our audience kind of what the similarities are uh, with those uh, standards and what they should be thinking about now that they're implementing 87 to maybe take forward with them to 94 and 96. Sure. Um yeah, I, I think interconnected, maybe not the right word. Uh, 87 created what you, maybe a template. And so after that template was created by 87, 94, and 96 follow that same template. Uh, 94 is a little bit different in that it kind of combines two different statements. So you got statement 60 and statement 87. And if you were to kind of marry those two, uh, 94 would be what you would get. So statement uh, 60 on service concession arrangements, uh, the board found that that guidance was far too narrow and that there was a lot of other P3 arrangements out there that didn't have any uh, any guidance for. And so uh, taking that, expanding the scope to uh, more P3s, uh, the board decided why reinvent the wheel and applied a lot of what 87 did to those arrangements. And so a lot of it's the same, um, I don't know if a lot of people know that statement 94 superseded statement 60. It took a lot of the stuff on statement 60 and brought it in, but it looks a lot like 87. And I'd say the one big difference between 87 and 94 is that with those P3 arrangements, there is a new asset or an asset that's being approved upon. And so uh, you will have a, uh, a receivable for an underlying asset if you're the uh, transfer or a liability for the underlying asset if you are the operator. That's probably the main difference when you apply a P3 or a 94 to a P3. Uh, for statement 96, I'd probably say there's a lot more of the same to 87. Um, Subscription-based information, IT arrangements, of course, 87 scopes out intangible assets. Uh, 96 picks it all up. Um, one, uh, I would say there's two di main differences. The, the first difference is that uh, not a lot of governments provide um, uh, cloud-based arrangements. So statement 96 takes this only from the subscriber's point of view. Um, that makes it a lot easier to read, a lot easier to uh, to follow what's going on. Uh, but one of the differences, it picks up some of the uh, guidance from 51 on uh, the stages of software implementation and pulls that in. And so you've kind of got a, a marriage of those two standards with 96 as well. Perfect. Thank you. Thank, thank you for kind of sharing the, the relationship and, and the background between those. So, you know, one other item at that conference that, that Gatsby brought up, and really they bring it up you know, right any time that they're, they're presenting to the public, is, is the need and importance for feedback 
Right. And so you uh, were a project leader on Statement 99, the omnibus, amongst uh, other projects when you were uh, there at GASB. So, you know, as the project leader, how important is it to receive constituent feedback? And what has GASB kind of recently done to um, attempt to receive more of that feedback? Uh, well, I would say if I learned one thing in the two years that I spent at the GASB, it's the importance of this feedback and how much the board really does value this feedback. Um, statement 99 is not what you would call a comprehensive statement. Right? It's It, it amends uh, other pronouncements. Um, none of those changes really uh, set the world on fire. Um, we don't get as much feedback on those types of statements. Uh, we get some feedback from the GAS Act, the Government Accounting Standards Advisory Council throughout the project. And then it's really whatever we get by way of comment letters. I think in that statement, we got 18 comment letters. Um, if not enough feedback is received, then the board has no problem with extending the, the, the comment date. And I have seen throughout my time there that comment letters would come in late, well past a deadline that's stated in the exposure document. And we always accept those. And so the board wants that feedback. When they're bigger uh, projects, such as the revenue and expense recognition, or the financial reporting framework project, uh, the board goes much further with obtaining feedback, soliciting direct feedback from, from individuals. Um, I can tell you with the exposure draft that's out now, um, the risks and uncertainties project, um, which was one that I also worked on, feedback is going to be very important because of uh, the disagreements that the board had in arriving at those, those provisions. Uh, one thing that the board is trying to do, and they started this with Statement 100, is to allow or provide a way for commenters to, to provide feedback um, electronically through an electronic input form rather than having to um, write uh, a full comment letter. Um, typically, commenters are auditors, preparers, or, or those organizations. Um, and this latest uh, exposure draft really needs some feedback from users. And so on the first page of that standard, there's a link and you click on the link um, and it'll take you to a survey. Um, I think that process will continue to be refined. Uh, there's there was quite a bit of discussion on what kind of questions that survey should ask uh, in order to solicit the right response. And I don't know that um, that they've arrived at the right place, but at least it gives uh, an opportunity for people to to respond, especially the user groups, which which is pretty important, especially with this this latest exposure draft. Yeah, yeah. when I heard about um, the creation of that survey and a little bit more informal way to give feedback, I was you know, really excited. So as you probably know, I, I recently rolled off of the AICPA's uh, Technical Issues Committee, where I served as the, the GASB zone chair. And I think that, you know, one of the best parts about that experience, you know, minus the places that we had those conferences at, you know, pre-COVID, was just how engaging Gatsby was with the feedback that we provided, right? It wasn't just a check the box mentality. If anything, it was the complete opposite of that. Whenever we would provide a, a comment letter um, as Tick, they would really reach back out to us and say, hey, what did you mean about this? And can you tell me what you're seeing in practice about uh, this feedback that you provided? Because at the end of the day, they're trying to get to uh, the standard that will uh, best support uh, you know the, their constituents so I thought that that was um, you know really awesome so right. we're gonna each, do a, each let me just say each board member reads every single comment letter 
And then the staff summarizes every comment and every comment letter, and then we deliberate on every comment and every comment letter throughout a, a matter of a few months. So that, that stuff is taken very seriously by the board. Definitely. I, I can tell you sometimes when and Jim Brown would give me some some comments on, on our comment letters at, at Tick, and really, you know, really digging in and making sure that we understood you know, what we were asking whenever we would provide certain comments. So, yeah, definitely. I want to do a, a little bit of a lightning round now. So we've reached well, we've actually passed 100 with with Gatsby statements with the issuance of statement 100 and 101. So let's just take them uh, piece by piece. So let's start with 100. So statement 100 accounting changes and error correct corrections. What what impact is that going to be having on our listeners? Well, I think a lot of people will read statement 100 and consider it to be a refresh or maybe a clarification of the existing guidance. Uh, the board found that the guidance in statement 62, uh, which by the way was was quite old, um, it, it uh, pre-existed the GASB, um, that user or preparers were not applying the guidance consistently. Um, I think a lot of the issues had to do with determining when something was a correction of error versus change in estimate. Um, there was there was some gray that that preparers could play around with, and who wants to admit that they're that they're correcting an error rather than just changing their estimate? Um, but I think most of the inconsistency was with the way they were disclosed. Um, the way that I had always done it in practice is consistent with what statement one hundred tells you to do, which is the way I thought everybody had done it. And as it turns out, that's really more was it just a best practice rather than the rule. It was a best practice. And uh, sure enough, I was reviewing some financial statements today, an organization that had implemented statement 84 and had a restatement because of it. And it was not as clear uh, you uh, the way that they had presented it. They didn't do it the way statement 100 will tell you to do it. So so in some instances, it will be a shift from what you're used to. But I think a lot of organizations will consider it to be just a refresh and a clarification. Sure, just just getting a little bit more towards that that consistency. I remember we, we do uh, peer I do peer reviews for for other smaller firms, and you'd, it'd be all over the map whenever you'd have something like this of what what was actually in the note, what what why were they saying that they were making this change? So ho hopefully uh, with statement 100, we'll get a little bit more more clarity and consistency there. All right, how about statement 101, co compensated absences? So statement 101, it's a similar uh, thing where the, the board found that uh, statement 16 um, was not being applied uh, consistently um, across the industry. So statement 16 was the first statement on uh, compensated absences. I think that came out in 1993. Um, the environment was different back then. Uh, there wasn't as many different types of leave as there are now. Um, it, it, focuses on vacation and sick leave and kind of takes those two down two different paths. And so what statement 101 is going to do is create more of a conceptual way of looking at leave um, and putting all leave in one bucket. And then there's there's three specific recognition uh, requirements uh, for when to recognize. And so I think that will help clarify um, as as organizations become more inventive in the type of leave that they offer. Uh, this hopefully will be a, a one, one approach that will apply to all types of leave. Right, and th this is something that's probably going to have a little bit more broad impact, right? Because a lot of governments have some, I mean, all the governments have some sort of leave. It's just how they've defined the leave that they're providing and when it's paid out. Correct, and and one of the changes that I, I, I think that some have, have not a, 
agreed to or agreed with or or perhaps we just have to get used to is that vesting is not a recognition criteria anymore. And it used to be that sick leave uh, would either not vest at all, meaning you wouldn't pay it out upon termination, although it would accumulate. You just wouldn't pay it out upon termination. Uh, and that would be a recognition criteria. And now that's no longer a recognition criteria specifically, still something that would be considered um, in the recognition process. But uh, I think some have had a hard time with that concept. Great, great, thank you. So you, let, let's go ahead and close with a proposed statement that's in, in the comment period. So, you know, that call to action we did earlier of, hey, go on the Gazi's website and provide feedback. This one is one where, that you mentioned maybe they should provide feedback on and the comment period is open. Uh, through the end of September. And so this is related to uh, certain risk disclosures. And so you have a pretty intimate relationship with this one, right? You were the, the project lead through the exposure draft. So can you kind of share why you think it's important uh, to give feedback, what this uh, proposed statement is attempting to do and, and how you think it'll impact uh, even future projects? Well, so I'll just to clarify, I was the project lead for about six months before I, I finished my time. Uh, the previous practice fellow um, who left in December was the project lead for her entire project, her entire two years, uh, by the way. And it wasn't supposed to be a project that lasted that long. Mm -hmm. And by the time she left, um, the, the project was still ongoing. And my my job, what I was tasked to do was to take all of the tentative board decisions that had been made and then draft the, the exposure draft. And, and that's what I did. So I really didn't have a lot to do with the decisions, but I'll tell you, it's not a very long statement. It was only nine paragraphs long, the standard section is. And when I brought that to the board, they deliberated on it for more than eight hours. So there is a lot there in those nine paragraphs that was very specifically thought about. Uh, the board did not agree unanimously on everything. Everybody had the same goal, the same objective. They agreed as to what they wanted the statement to do, uh, but there is disagreements on how to get there. And you'll notice that there is an alternative view expressed. The alternative view was written by the chairman, Joe Black, um, and uh, Carolyn Smith signed her name to it. Um, and, with, and they disagree about um, the, the disclosure threshold. Um, and so there, there is a lot of interest in what stakeholders believe. And that specifically is uh, one word they want the users to, to weigh in on. And so there's a, a couple of videos that we just put out. Um, I filmed it before I left, and then I saw they just posted it on the website. Uh, two videos, um, Jeff Praviti um, had a big hand in the script. He's the board member that, that represents user groups. And uh, he's trying to get users to weigh in on whether they, not, they think that what we've got here will arrive at what would be essential. Great, thank you. Well, you, you've definitely piqued my interest on this one. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back and and read uh, and, and hopefully uh, comment as well. So thank you so much uh, for your time and insight. And thank you to the audience for spending time with us. Uh, if you'd like to discuss these or other GASB topics and the advisory and accounting guidance that Cherry Becker can provide, you can reach Scott at scott.anderson at cbh.com or me at danny.martinez at cbh.com. You can also find us on LinkedIn or on the Cherry Becker website. We will continue to provide new episodes on this and other Cherry Becker podcast feeds. Uh, so please subscribe. Scott? My email is actually sanderson at cbh.com. Sorry about that, Scott. 
All right. Thank you, everyone. Have a great day.